Good afternoon, everybody. I am Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies, who is your host for this event this afternoon. Uh, defending property rights is often seen as something that only cold-hearted libertarians would do, trying to uh, fight for rich people who seem, or many people think only the ones who only have property, who would only care about property rights. And certainly, if someone says, I fight for property rights, you probably know what side of the political spectrum they are on. Um, but in Cornerstone of Liberty, actually, Roger, could I borrow that to hold it up? Thank you. In Cornerstone of Liberty, a second edition uh, for today's by Tim and Christina Sandifer, they explain why that view is fundamentally in error. Uh, they clear, uh, clearly and expertly say, explain that a property rights make society a better, more cooperative place. My favorite passage in their book is, a society that did not respect property rights might still be able to make some decisions, but those decisions would have no economic dimension. Instead, they would be based on considerations of power, that is, on political considerations. Questions about how to use time and resources would be resolved primarily by influence and authority and only incidentally by the knowledge, choices, or desires of producers and consumers. That idea is related to a lecture and an essay I've written called The Primitivism of Politics, which discusses how when you systematically violate property rights, you reinvent the Hobbesian world, only this time in suits rather than with clubs and chains. And that's sort of what we start to see now is a, is a reinvention of the Hobbesian world because our property rights, partially because our property rights are constantly in peril. And we'll be talking about that today. So I'm going to introduce Tim and Christina first, and then we'll have uh, Roger and Professor Percival comment afterwards. We'll give a somewhat abridged version of their bios because they're quite long. Tim Sandifer is, as of a week ago, <laughs> the Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute. And before joining Goldwater, he was a 15 years as a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. He has won victories for economic liberty in many states, including California, Kentucky, Missouri. And he is the author of three books, including First edition of Cornerstone of Liberty, uh, The Conscience of the Constitution, and A Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law, all published by the Cato Institute. He's also the author of some 45 scholarly articles, um, including on legal issues and also on Shakespeare and ancient Greek drama. He also, the only wrong opinion he really has is that he prefers Star Trek to Star Wars, but we can talk about that later. He appears on many media outlets and has been published in many, many papers. Christina Sandifer is the executive vice president of the Goldwater Institute, where she develops policies and litigates cases advancing healthcare freedom, free enterprise, private property rights, free speech, and taxpayer rights. She has won important victories for property rights in Arizona and works nationally to promote the Institute's Private Property Rights Protection Act. She's also the co-drafter of the very important Right to Try initiative, which is uh, dealing with the Right to Try uh, drugs, which is now law in 24 states. Uh, she has appeared on many shows and, and written for many outlets. She is a graduate of Michigan State University College of Law and Hillsdale College. So, Tim, are you going first? Yes. So, please welcome Tim Sanderford. Thank you so much. So, uh, I'll start out by saying I'm not a cold-hearted libertarian. I want to present to you a warm-hearted libertarian <clears throat> defense of private property rights because, you know, we're approaching Valentine's Day, which has the double significance. Not only is it a holiday to celebrate romantic love, it's also the day that Frederick Douglass chose to celebrate as his birthday. Born a slave, of course, he didn't know his actual birthday, so he chose to celebrate it on February 14th. And I find a relationship between these two in talking about property rights, because when I think of private property rights, I tend to start by thinking about my wedding ring. 
This is my wedding ring. It's not worth a great deal of money. I paid about $200 or so for it. It's not made of any precious metal. It's made of a titanium alloy. But it's very important to me. It's made out of an engine part of a Pratt & Whitney J58 turbo ramjet engine from an SR-71 Blackbird, tail number 17980. I thought that was easy. And the, <laughs> the reason that's important to me is because both my father and my grandfather were engineers on the SR-71 Blackbird program for Lockheed Skunk Works. And so that plane is part of our family, essentially. And so to have a wedding ring that symbolizes my family really meant a lot to me. I think that's really a key to what property rights really is about because there are basically two ways of thinking about private property. We can think of it as a natural aspect of what it means to be human or we can think of it as I think most people including most libertarians think of it as socially constructed phenomenon that private property belongs to us because society has allocated it to us in some way that society determines that we have private property by choosing not to take it away, and that society makes these decisions for its own purposes. But I think that ownership is like love itself. The phenomenon of ownership is similar to the phenomenon of love. It is a dynamic relationship with something in the outside world that is creative and preservative. It allows us to express ourselves, to create our, our self-story, as it were, and to preserve that story as it goes forward. Belongings help us to constitute ourselves in interaction with the material world. And this is just as true of corporate stock ownership as it is of a wedding ring. Um, there's a, an article that we cite in the book that uh, called um, uh, Possessions and the Extended Self by a writer named um, uh, Belk. And Belk puts forward four ways of thinking about how private property allows us to realize ourselves. Property helps us to distinguish ourselves from the environment. It helps us to distinguish the self from others. It helps us to manage our identities, and by that he means something like the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Private property allows us to manage how we think about ourselves. And fourth, property helps the old to preserve a sense of continuity in confrontation with the thought of death. Now, if you think about it, love does all four of those things also. Love helps us to distinguish the self from the environment, to distinguish the self from others, and to distinguish the special person's distinction from the rest of the world and celebrate what makes that person unique and special. It helps us to, love helps us to manage our identities and who we are. I'm not the same person I was when I dated so-and-so in college, right? And love helps us to preserve a sense of continuity in the face of our mortality. Now, that's the natural vision of property as I think of it. I think that's what John Locke meant when he talked about property being somehow created by our, uh, our mixing of our labor with the material world. There's an old parody of this view that says, well, that must be nonsense because if I pour a can of tomato sauce into the ocean, I've mixed my, my, my labor with the ocean and I don't own the ocean and isn't that a silly notion? I, I don't think that's what Locke was going for. What he was saying was, I own myself, I own my capacities, my indefeasible personal identity, my education, my tastes, my cares, my worries, my fears, 
And I, when I make something to provide for myself or harvest something to provide for myself, what I'm doing is mixing that self with the material world. That's why we feel wronged when people take things away from us. Wronged in a way that the economic and merely legal approach to property fails to capture. When we talk about this, we often say, well, a wedding ring, it has economic value, but it also has sentimental value. And we use this term sentimental value sometimes suggests that it's not real value. On the contrary, sentimental value is all value. All value is sentimental value. The only reason I value this water is because it keeps me from coughing and disrupting my speech. Why? Because it's, it would be embarrassing, personally embarrassing for me to do that, right? And so it's, that's a sentimental value. The only reason I value food or shelter is because of my sentimental desire to live, right? The Austrians call this the subjective value theory. But really what it says is value isn't purely utilitarian, manageable, the kind of, uh, of crude measures that economics tends to emphasize. Now, on the other hand, there, from this natural view, there's this permission society view. There's the idea that, pr that private property is presumptively social and that society lets us have and use things. And I think that underlies the, the idea that private property is all about efficient resource maximization or efficient resource allocation. Now, private property does serve a very important role, and we talk about this in the book, very important role in facilitating decision-making. That's obviously crucial to why we have private property. But I don't think that's the core of it. And in fact, I think what you see in, you see this collision between this individual-centered conception of private property as natural on one hand, and this social maximization argument on the other in the recent Raisin case from the US Supreme Court, Horn versus Department of Agriculture. Now, for those who aren't familiar, what happens is the federal government in, in league with California has established a cartel system that essentially confiscates something like half of the nation's raisin crop every year. About half of the world's raisin crop is grown in the San Joaquin Valley of California. And the federal government in the state of California confiscates up to 50% of this raisin crop every year for the express purpose of keeping food more expensive for you to buy for your children. I'm not making this up. That is literally the purpose of the program. So some raisin farmers said, well, wait a minute. We don't, if you're going to take our raisins away, you at least owe us just compensation. So they filed a lawsuit. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals both said, no, no, it's not a taking of your property. This is a toll that you pay for the privilege of selling your raisins in interstate commerce. How many things are wrong with that sentence? <laughs> for one thing, we know that the Supreme Court interprets co interstate commerce so broadly that you could not sell raisins on the sidewalk to passersby without qualifying as selling your raisins in interstate commerce. But most importantly, if you own these raisins, you necessarily own the right to sell these raisins. There's a reason we have the phrase, the fruit of your labors. That's what that means, right? And that brings me back to Frederick Douglass. There's a wonderful passage in Douglass's autobiography. Actually, you'll find it in his third autobiography. It's not in the first where he talks about having escaped from slavery, walking down the street in New Bedford, Massachusetts, looking for a job. And as he's walking down the sidewalk, he sees a pile of coal that had been delivered by a delivery man. Back then, that's how they did it. The horse-drawn cart would come up, and they'd shovel you your allotment of coal, just like the milkman or something. And it was up to you to get, the, get that coal into your basement. So 
he said, well, he saw this pile of coal. He walked up and he knocked on the door and he, he asked the lady inside if he could shovel the coal down the chute into her basement for her for pay. And she said, how much will you charge? And he said, I'll, I'll take whatever you pay me. So she said, go ahead and do it. And he shoveled it in. He says he wasn't, it didn't take very long, he says. And the lady put into my hand two silver half dollars. He says, to understand the emotion which, which compelled me when I held that money in my hand and knew that it was mine, that my hands were my own and could earn more of the precious coin. To understand that feeling, one must have been in some sense himself a slave. It's a wonderfully moving passage. What Douglas understood at that moment was how private property liberates us. Private property allows us to realize ourselves in this way that I've been speaking about. It's this indefeasible part of what it means to be human. It's a universal human right. And that is just as much true of your raisins grown on your farm, of the stock options that are in your portfolio, of any abstract conception of property futures that you might have as it is of your wedding ring. Thank you. All right. Well, property rights and Valentine's Day, that just gives you a little glimpse into the romantic life of uh, the Sandifer family. <laughs> But uh, Tim is actually the romantic um, uh, of this couple, and uh, I'm, I'm the more practical one. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the real-world effects of some of the things that Tim just talked about. And if that isn't a gender role reversal for you, then I don't know what is. So, Ten years ago, nobody really thought that eminent domain, and eminent domain, of course, is the government's power to take private property for a public use so long as they provide just compensation, would be used to justify taking private property for a private use. Right? When we think about what does eminent domain typically mean, what did it historically mean? Property was able to be taken to build roads, to build canals, military bases, and to my great dismay, post offices. But it, those are all public uses. Those are all public things. So about 10 years ago, the, the Supreme Court surprised and shocked the nation when it rubber-stamped uh, state officials in Connecticut's decision to take private property from Suzette Kilo and her neighbors in New London, Connecticut, and give it away for a private redevelopment project that would be used, uh, hopefully, in the state officials' minds uh, by Pfizer, among other companies. How is that possible? Uh, this is private property. That's a private use. And in the decision, uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Kilo versus New London, the Supreme Court said, well, actually, this is a public use. And it's a public use because it's actually public, it's giving public benefits, right? So when we take property from the little property owners that really don't make much tax money for the government and we give it away to a big corporation, the big corporation is going to pay a lot more taxes to the government. And they're also going to create lots of jobs. That phrase, job creation, is so vague, right? But that, those are the types of things that the Supreme Court said were legitimate uses for taking away private property. Now, no one really could have predicted what the reaction would be to that case. But in fact, the reaction, as you all remember, was massive. The uh, people were outraged across the country. And politicians on both sides of the political aisle in states nationwide rushed to pass laws that would protect our private property rights because they knew that if the government could come take away Suzette Kilo's home and give it away to a big corporation, then nobody's home is safe. 
So they passed laws that redefined, or that actually redefined in, what, in the Constitution's original view what eminent domain really meant and said that, in fact, a public use really has to be a public use. It can't be a, you can't take private property away to use for a private use in disguise. So that was a good thing, but now that we've got about 10 years to look back and learn from these laws, we see that actually, in a lot of ways, these laws were just mere window dressing. Well, why is that? Because governments, as governments will, have found lots of loopholes to take away your property rights without paying you, despite the fact that these states have passed these laws. So how is that? Well, when we look at uh, an eminent domain case, what government does is it takes away your property from you outright. But what about regulations? What do regulations do? Government can also take away your property rights without actually taking title to the property. Those are called regulatory takings. And what that, what that means is that government can come and regulate your property and take away your right to use your property, your right to build on your property, sometimes even your right to sell your property. And by doing so, uh, that diminishes the value of your property. These regulations are out of control, and they're more rampant than eminent domain takings these days. And actually, I would argue they're more insidious than eminent domain, even though government will leave you title to the property after the regulation. Why is that? Well, when government takes your property by eminent domain, as we know, it has to pay you for it. But when government takes your property rights away through regulation, what it's doing is it's regulating your property value away, but it's leaving you with title to the property. And that means that it's leaving you with the loan payments, it's leaving you with the taxes, it's leaving you liable for people who could come onto your property and get injured, and then you're going to have to pay for it through insurance or other means. So even though the government doesn't technically take title to your property, it's doing all of these things to destroy your property rights, and the kicker is the courts often will not order the government to pay you a dime for doing that. Why is that? Because technically the property is still yours, and if you can still use it in some way, then a taking, according to the courts nowadays, hasn't occurred, and the government doesn't have to pay you for taking away your property rights. So this is, this is a, a really outrageous development and something that has been occurring more and more since the Kelo case. One recent example to illustrate how this happens is short-term rentals. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Airbnb and VRBO and the advent of the sharing economy. It's connecting people in ways that we never thought possible. And people who otherwise wouldn't visit small towns or cities far away are able to do that. Families are able to go on vacation and take their children. Uh, people are able to rent out their homes and make some extra money, contribute to the local economy. And again, it's, it's, it's cheaper for families to come and visit a town that they otherwise wouldn't have patronized. Now, to get a sense of just how profound this revolution has been, consider this. Airbnb now has more rooms available online in one year than major hotel chains like the Marriott or the Hilton. And it, depending on the statistics that you check, um, the rooms uh, it account for under Airbnb account for about 7 to 17% of all short-term rentals in New York City. So again, major, major part of the economy. So we would expect regulators to, to uh, open their arms to these new innovations, right? But unfortunately, they haven't. They've done the opposite. They have punished people for renting out their homes and making rooms available to visitors. And in fact, sometimes they've inflicted serious criminal penalties on people who would do so. And 
courts, again, will look at these regulatory takings and say they're not actually takings because, in fact, this is just a legitimate function of government. Government's just regulating. It's not really taking anything away from you. Honolulu has a particularly egregious regulation that it's considering. It's already illegal to offer your home as a short-term rental in Honolulu, but they're considering fining people $10,000 a day for renting out their property as a short-term rental. So there's another example that comes from Arizona, which is particularly egregious. Glenn Odegaard is a resident of the Phoenix area of Arizona, and he often would travel up to Jerome, Arizona. Jerome is a small little mining town up in the mountains. It's known as America's most vertical city because the roads are very steep and it's about a mile high up the side of the mountain. And Glenn loved Jerome. Jerome used to be a booming mining town with thousands of people in it, but after the mine shut down in the 1950s, Lots of people fled from Jerome, and so the way that the remaining people sustain the town is that they turned it into a tourist location. They opened up uh, beds and breakfasts and little ghost tours and eclectic shops and fun places to eat, and, and Glenn just loved visiting Jerome, and he really dreamed of having a place there that he could call home and that he could visit occasionally when he could get a weekend away from Phoenix. But of course, it's expensive to purchase property, and what Glenn found is a piece of property that he could afford it was a home that had been vacant for about 60 years, so about the time that uh, the mine shut down, and it was covered in 10 feet of mud and dirt after a landslide basically destroyed the home. So Glenn thought, ah, home sweet home. This is the property that I can afford to purchase. But the reason he did that is because he saw an opportunity. Glenn is an entrepreneur. He took a look at the property and he said, you know, if I put money into this and I fix it up, I can then rent it out as a short-term rental make my money back, and then I'll still be able to have this home to come visit occasionally when I can come up from the Phoenix area. So he went and got all the necessary permits, and he put his blood, sweat, and tears into the project, and he literally transformed it from a health hazard to a historic beauty. It earned a spot on the cover of Arizona Highways magazine and actually is part of the home tours in, uh, in Jerome. And so how did this, the town of Jerome reward him for his efforts in contributing to the restoration of the town? They now call him an outlaw. They called him an outlaw and because they changed the rules about what you could do with your property, even though Glenn bought the property to use as a rental, even though he got the necessary permits, the town suddenly decided that, in fact, we're not going to use short -term, uh, your property for short-term rentals anymore, and if you do so, you can be fined hundreds of dollars a day and sent to jail for 90 days for every single day that you rent out your property. Now, what's really interesting about this situation is the way that Jerome officials justified their actions. They said this is a legitimate government function. How are, why is it a legitimate government function? Well, you know, if people stay in a home for under 30 days, they're not familiar with the area, and so maybe they won't know the, where the potholes are on the road, and they'll trip and they'll fall. Or, you know, people who visit from out of town, they don't know when trash day is. So there's going to be this huge sanitation problem because they're going to put the trash out on the wrong day and animals are going to come take it. And my favorite one, we want to encourage people to participate in city government. And in order to do that, we have to have proper long-term housing for them. So it's not a, not a good idea to have short-term housing. Of course, there's 400 people in this town. Those are the types of justifications that the government gave. But what's really behind this is a growing belief that Government officials know best, and 
this is a permission society and the government should be able to micromanage what you do with your property, even if it puts entrepreneurs out of business, hurts the local economy, and even if it's the purpose for which you bought your property. And again, sadly, states often uphold, or state courts often uphold these vacation rental bans because they agree with Jerome that these are legitimate government goals. Now, while it's understandable that neighbors don't want loud renters or lots of traffic on the streets, towns and cities should look to their existing regulations and enforce them, enforce noise ordinances, enforce the trash ordinance. But they have no incentive to do so because there's no cost to the government of regulating your property rights away. The costs are borne completely by the property owner. And that's why we developed the Property Ownership Protection Act. And the reason that we developed that is for this exact reason, because eminent domain reform only goes so far, and what the government ought to do is pay you when it takes away your property rights, whether or not the government takes title to your property. The act is really simple. It says that when state officials take away your property rights for reasons that are not related to health and safety, then they have to pay you for it. That's it. So in other words, the government can bar you from polluting, it can bar you from using your property rights to harm your neighbors. Uh, it cannot bar you from renting out your home as a short-term rental, or it can't force you to op offer your property to the public for a public park or uh, for a wildlife preserve without paying you for the cost of that regulation. So, and then it, it it's also um, goes beyond what many federal courts will do. Federal courts will often say that if a regulation doesn't affect the total value of your property, then you're out of luck and you don't get paid for it. The Property Protection Act says, no, if you are, if your regulation, if the regulation regulates 10% of your property value away, then you ought to get paid for that 10% of the value, even if it doesn't affect the entire property. And my favorite part is that the government if it doesn't want to pay you for its regulations, the government bears the burden of proving that its regulations are for health and safety. Currently, in federal and state courts, if you want to get compensation for your property rights, you have to go into court and you bear the burden of proving that you should be able to use your property. Again, this is that permission society idea. So the Property Protection Act goes back to the original concept of property, and it says that you own your property, and if the government wants to take away your property rights, it has to go to court and prove why it should be able to do that without paying you for that taking. Now, 10 years ago, Arizonans approved a version of this law uh, with help by the Goldwater Institute, and it is by far the nation's strongest property rights protection, and the reason is it has changed the way that regulators think about taking away your property rights. It has ch literally changed the rules of the game when it comes to regulation. Here's how, I'll give you a short example. Uh, only about two years after the Property Rights Protection Act was passed in Arizona, Maricopa County put into effect a building moratorium around the Luke Air Force Base. Couldn't build anything on your property. As you can imagine, this had devastating effects on property values. Uh, people who had newly rezoned vacant lots that they wanted to put houses on, those property values were cut by 95%. People who owned homes already in the area, those property values were cut by about half. People wanted to put pools in their backyards, couldn't do that anymore. Solar panels on their roofs, couldn't do that. People couldn't even make necessary repairs to the electrical systems in their homes because, again, you couldn't get a permit to build or make any re renovations on your property. So the Goldwater Institute, in, in light of the Property Protection Act, took these property owners 
claims to court. We filed claims on behalf of almost 200 property owners, $20 million worth of damages. And we took it to Maricopa County, and we said, this is the cost of your regulation. So Maricopa County took a look at the bill and said, no, I don't think that we'll be spending $20 million. And they decided to rescind the ordinance. This is great. This is a great outcome because the government, for the first time, had to consider the actual costs of, their, of its regulations and decided that the regulations were not worth it. Now, of course, officials will complain that they shouldn't have to pay to regulate. They shouldn't have to pay, <laughs> so shouldn't have to pay to regulate. And because, again, government can't function if it's not able to regulate. But this really mistakes the, reason, the, the two reasons for regulation, right? Sometimes government can regulate to protect individual rights. It can regulate under its legitimate police powers. So if it does that, then it doesn't have to pay you for the regulations. Again, if it stops you from polluting, doesn't have to pay. When the government comes and takes a gun away from a robber, it doesn't have to pay the robber for taking away that gun. Those are legitimate police powers. But if the government wants to use its power to offer a so-called public benefit, then it's going to have to use tax dollars in order to pay you for the property rights that it's taken away. That's the difference. Now, regulators will say, well, OK, but this makes the cost of regulation too expensive. We can't afford the public benefits that we want to provide if you're going to make us pay for them all the time. But of course, regulation is costly to somebody. Somebody's got to bear those costs. Without the Property Rights Protection Act, it's the property owner that has to bear the costs of regulation alone. And what we say is that this act gives property owner or gives government a choice. They have to consider the cost of their regulation. And if the regulation is worth it to the community and to the government, then they ought to pay for it. If it's not worth it, then property owners certainly shouldn't shoulder that cost on their own. After a decade of success in Arizona, we've written in the book about uh, many other examples, stories about people who uh, have had their property rights protected and who have been paid when their rights have been taken away, and also decisions that the government has made based on what this, how this law has changed the rules of the game. After a decade of success and a decade of lessons, we're hoping that the other 49 states across the country will pass the Property Rights Protection Act so that we can once again respect the most fundamental right of all, which is the right of ownership. Thank you. Thank you, Tim and Christina. Now, is your wedding ring, ma ring made from like the muffler bracket of a 73 Pinto or something like that? My wedding ring is just pure platinum. Okay. <laughs> Not reared in metal. Yeah, of course. You can. <laughs> Uh, we're going to hear a comment first uh, from Professor Robert Percival, uh, who is the Robert F. Stanton Professor of Law and Director of the Environmental Law Program at the University of Maryland's Carey School of Law. He joined the faculty after serving as a senior attorney for the Environmental Defense Fund, and he served as a law clerk for Judge Shirley M. Huffstetter Stedler at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Byron R. White, and he was also a special assistant to the first U.S. Secretary of Education. Uh, he's received numerous awards for his teaching. Uh, he has, he has guest, uh, had visiting professorships at Harvard and Georgetown University of Law Center. His bio is illustrious and, and very impressive, so please welcome Professor Percival. <laughs> Thank you. I want to uh, start by uh, uh, also mentioning that today's Mardi Gras day, so uh, let the good times roll. Enjoy yourself. 
Um, I really appreciated the invitation to uh, speak here, and I especially enjoyed uh, reading the new edition of this book. It's quite comprehensive, extremely readable, and um, my main criticism of it, I think, would be that I think the Sanifers are too modest uh, because one thing the new edition says that I didn't find, I actually bought the old edition and compared them. I didn't find in the old edition the notion that there's a national property rights crisis going on. And I would think that with all the successes legally and in legislatures of the property rights movement, particularly in the wake of Kelo, that they'd be willing to say, well, we're actually kind of winning a lot of these things and it's not a crisis. So at times I think the book has kind of a hyperbolic, uh, uh, alarmist tone that makes it sound like maybe it's like a fundraising document or something when they say that protection of property rights is being ignored, denigrated, and, and swept aside, when actually I think we have pretty good protection of property rights in the US today. For the last 34 years, I moved to DC to clerk for Justice White, having spent six years in California before that, and decided I was only going to live in California for the rest of my life because I so loved it there. But one thing led to another. And for the last 34 years, I've owned real estate on Capitol Hill where I live. And uh, as we discovered when we were renovating our house, Capitol Hill is a historic preservation district. And you have to get approval from the Historic Preservation Board for any changes you make to the facade of your house. And so our architect had to go through this process. And it increased the cost of our renovation. But uh, it's worked to our advantage. And it's one of the reasons why Capitol Hill real estate is so prized, because the historic character of the neighborhood has been preserved. That wasn't a health or safety measure. It wasn't designed to prevent a nuisance. But we've enjoyed the reciprocity of advantage of that regulation. I do a lot of work in China these days because China has such severe environmental problems. And I spent a semester the last time that uh, I was on sabbatical teaching there. And I taught the Kilo class to my Chinese students. And they were absolutely appalled at the notion that even in the United States, which they see as this beacon of liberty, that private property could be taken for a development project. And uh, you would only get just compensation. Now, of course, China is where the real crisis in property rights is happening because the government there will snap its fingers, decide we want to you know, build a new Olympic village, and a million people get displaced, and they get nothing like just compensation at all. But in the US, things are quite different. I'm an expert on environmental law, and the parts of the book that were of most interest to my scholarly interests were dealing with environmental law. And I must say that I, I fear that the authors have kind of succumbed to the right-wing mantra about the all-powerful EPA trying to regulate every drop of water. In fact, I think if you look across history, you'll see that environmental law has been completely consistent with property rights because it's designed to protect our property from invasions from outside. 400 years ago, when a court in England decided Aldred's case, the first case where a court had said even a non-trespassory invasion of your property rights can be actionable as a nuisance, when someone set up a pigsty right next to an elegant country estate, environmental law has sought to vindicate property rights and to protect public health. Um, um, let me talk, I'll talk about uh, the book's references to Kilo, 
uh, an eminent domain, and then regulatory takings, and then I'll conclude by talking about uh, their portrayal of environmental law. The Kelo decision, when it first came down, it didn't strike me really as an environmental decision in any sense, but uh, I have a special chapter in my casebook. Since 1992, I've been the principal author of the most widely used environmental law casebook, and we added a special chapter on land use and, and takings cases. And mostly that deals with regulatory takings. So Kilo, uh, it's in there, but uh, I don't think it really has huge environmental implications, although Jonathan Adler disagrees with me on that. First thing I wanted to emphasize about Kilo is that it does not say that eminent domain can be used for a private purpose, for an exclusively private purpose. Justice Stevens, in his majority opinion, says because this is a public purpose, it's for a public benefit, uh, that uh, that's why it's constitutional. Now, in fact, I think it's probably true that uh, New London's decision to use eminent domain in the case, and particularly to take uh, Suzette Kilo's property, um, was wrong. It was a mistake. It didn't need to be included in the plan, and that the Connecticut Supreme Court should have affirmed the trial judge's holding that there was no public necessity to take Ms. Kelo's property. But I think the decision itself by the Supreme Court on the constitutional point is correct because it's justified largely on federalism's grounds. That, um, as uh, Professor Ellickson of Yale has argued, the Supreme Court was wise not to set a rigid formula that would limit states and localities in deciding uh, what activities constituted public use. Over time, the role of government has evolved considerably. Our economy now is such that whenever the Federal Reserve makes a decision, it can have huge economic implications for our investments. And it's true that when we get to the regulatory takings aspect of this, we'll see that, um, that largely uh, the constitutional doctrine on regulatory takings has been limited to real estate and not you know, equities or uh, fixed income securities that can easily be wiped out if we guess wrong when we make an investment and the government makes a decision uh, the other way. But Justice Stevens, in his majority opinion in Kelo, was very careful to justify it largely on uh, federalism grounds by saying for more than a century, our public use jurisprudence has widely eschewed rigid formulas and intrusive scrutiny in favor of affording legislatures broad latitude in determining what public needs justify the use of the takings power. Uh, and in fact, he emphasized that nothing in our opinion precludes any state from placing further restrictions on the exercise of its takings power. Uh, the Sanders has been very successful in lobbying for legislation. I think 43 states now have enacted laws. Uh, they mention in their book that they don't think those laws necessarily go far enough, but that's because our democratically elected legislatures are making the judgment about what is and is not uh, good for uh, economic development. Uh, now, um, with respect to uh, one... One thing I want to note about the book is, is it, it's very comprehensive, but it doesn't mention the Lingle case from 2005 uh, that discarded the substantially advanced governmental interest test as a takings test. And it doesn't mention the Stop the Beach case from 2010, uh, where the Supreme Court unanimously 
upheld against a takings challenge, a Florida law that was very innovative in trying to protect beachfront property by uh, engaging in expensive replenishment projects to ensure that as sea level rise, the property wouldn't erode away. That, I think, is going to be very important in the future, how property rights are developed in the context of sea level rise. Um, now, with respect to uh, their criticisms of environmental law, the book uh, mentions, acknowledges the tragedy of the commons which is a primary justification for some form of collective action to protect the environment. And it mentions the notion of negative externalities and the ancient principle of Roman law, the sic utere principle, that basically says, and this is still the foundation of environmental law throughout the world, everyone must use their own so not to harm another. We have a right to use our property as we please so long as we don't cause foreseeable significant harm to others. They say that's no longer a foundational principle because now you need permission for everything. But I think that's greatly overstating the case. Uh, individual landowners, homeowners, rarely need permission from the government to do things, under at least under the federal environmental laws. And in fact, it's the case that in the context of wetlands, where there's most of the book's complaints are directed to the Clean Water Act's Section 404 program, you're already uh, subject to a nationwide permit that says you don't have to do anything if you're developing less than half an acre of property. So it's only large developments that are likely to have some significant environmental interests that need to apply for permits, and most of the permit applications are granted. Yes, it might take a long time. It would be expensive in some circumstances. But it's not fair to say that the government is regulating every drop of water Normal farming activities are excluded by the act. Uh, okay, so I'll conclude by talking about their proposed reforms. First, they, they question the constitutionality of the Endangered Species Act. Every court that has decided this issue at the Court of Appeals level has upheld this, and the Supreme Court's consistently denied cert. One bizarre thing is they recommend overruling the snail darter case, TVA versus Hill. In my 30 years of teaching environmental law, I've never heard anyone say that. Apparently, they think that it read the act as absolute, but it was dealing with Section 7 of the act that applies to activities of the federal government, requires federal agencies to consult, not Section 9 that applies to individual, uh, individuals harming endangered species. And the act has subsequently been amended, so it's no longer absolute. You can get incidental take permits. Uh, with respect to the Clean Water Act, they criticize the waters of the United States rule and argue that EPA is vastly trying to expand its jurisdiction. That's simply not the case. They're simply responding to Chief Justice Roberts' invitation to clarify the law that's hopelessly confused because of the 414 decision in the Rapanos case. And finally, they make Mr. Rapanos out to be some kind of a hero. He was someone who illegally filled 54 acres of wetlands, ordered his consultant to destroy any evidence, and fired the consultant when he was told he needed a permit. He repeatedly ignored government orders to stop, and that's why he was prosecuted. And even after the Supreme Court case on remand, he had to pay a very substantial fine because it was clear that his property was wetlands. Holding him out as a hero is the kind of thing 
that encourages the lawless activity that took place at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge where armed thugs took over federal property. The book doesn't discuss uh, Article 4's property clause that gives the federal government the right to manage federally owned property. And so I think um, we need less demonization of EPA and more discussion of the benefits of the reasonable environmental regulations. That's the reason why we breathe clean air and drink clean water, at least in most parts of the US today. And we're not like China, where 1.6 million people die of air pollution every year. Thank you. Well, thank you, Professor Percival. Uh, finally, we're going to hear from Roger Pallon, who is the Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute and the founder and the director of the Cato Center for Constitutional Studies and the man who saved me from the doldrums of corporate law. Uh, he is the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University. Prior to Cato, he served uh, five different senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice, and he was a national fellow at the Stanford's Hoover Institution. He has been on all the TVs, and he has published in all the writing places. And he holds a BA from Columbia, an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from the George, Was George Washington University School of Law. Please welcome Roger Pallon. Thank you, Trevor, and now for some demonization of the EPA. Um, I can't help but uh, start by uh, suggesting that uh, this idea of the half-acre half exception to permitting that you talked about or referenced, Bob, uh, reminds me of that famous New Yorker cover with uh, how the country looks like from Manhattan, as you look. There's often a distance to San Francisco. Uh, only in the East Coast would a half-acre be thought to be substantial property. Once you, once you get over the Appalachians, you know, half-acres are what you... Um, that's small change. In any event... Um, in this book, and this is a splendid book, it's available outside. I urge you to pick up a copy because it will tell you all that you need to know about the state of property rights today uh, and uh, more. Um, Tim talked about property rights uh, as a human right. Um, Christina talked about the law. I'm going to uh, zero down some more on the legal aspects. Uh, but um, what I uh, want to say at the outset and probably at the end is that in this book you will find just a, uh, a plethora of horrendous uh, cases of uh, abusive property rights. Uh, and not only that, but it places all those horrendous cases in the context of uh, legal and philosophical theory, and uh, that is its great uh, virtue to my mind. Um, now, speaking of uh, context, um, uh, as in so many of these property rights issues, we have the problem today because of the vast expansion of government. And one of the things this book does bring out is the original design from the Madisonian uh, Constitution rooted in the moral theory of Jefferson's Declaration and how that fundamentally changed in the progressive era in which you had the emergence of the kind of Leviathan that we know and love so well today, and the emergence of the permitting society, the idea that you 
at least if you are doing something in more than a half acre, have to do by permit. Uh, and getting those permits is oftentimes the kind of thing that wears a person down if it does not exhaust him financially. In any event, <clears throat> the, um, what I'm going to do is set forth four cases in which an individual will run up against the government with respect to property and then take the last of those and divide it into four further cases and then come back to the first uh, group and the third of that, namely regulatory takings. Now, the first area where uh, a person will come up against a problem with government is when government takes an action that reduces the value of his property substantially. A military base in a town closes down, the school closes down, you lose the value of the property in your house, and you think government has taken something that belongs to you. No, it doesn't, because this is nothing that you own free and clear. That's why when Bob mentioned that the court has not expanded uh, takings uh, law to cover such things as securities, uh, diminutions as a result of something that government does uh, is absolutely correct because you don't own the value in your securities. And look at the market yesterday if you want any evidence of that. Um, you own only the securities and government, if it's doing what it is legitimately doing, uh, can take actions that reduce the values of securities. Uh, and so uh, this first uh, example of uh, actions that government takes that reduces the value of property does not per se give you a takings claim against the government. The second is, of course, the classic nuisance case where the police power comes into play to prevent nuisances, odors, noise, vibrations, uh, particulate matter, and so forth. And here, too, you're not entitled to compensation because you're just uh, do, using your property in a way that you have no right to use it. And if, indeed, it requires uh, the government to restrict you such that you lose value in your property, you don't uh, get compensation here either. The third case is the regulatory takings case, and that's the one I'm going to say more about in just a few minutes. Here, you've got government taking an action not to prevent a harm, but rather to provide the public with certain goods, lovely views, wildlife habitat, and the like. Here is where you have the government, by rights, should be paying you for the loss of the value in your property because it's not protecting a harm, it, it protecting others from harm, it is providing the public with a good. I'll come back to this in a minute. And of course, the fourth category is where the all-out use of eminent domain, where the government takes the property, the fee, and provide you with compensation. Rarely, of course, is it just compensation. They provide you with <clears throat> what is ordinarily thought of as market value, if you're lucky. And of course, that is not just compensation in most cases, because if it were, you'd have your property on the market. The fact that you have your property off the market means it's more valuable to you than what it would fetch on the market. So rarely do you get just compensation under the full use of eminent domain. Here we've got four kinds of cases of eminent domain use. The first is, of course, the usual one we think of to have a road, a school, a military base, and so forth, where the government condemns and takes title of the property. The second category is where the government uh, delegates the use of eminent domain to a private entity to exercise um, uh, for uh, the purpose of providing, for example, a cable line, a telephone line, uh, a telegraph, and so on and so forth, where the property has to be uh, 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 used for a public 
purpose that is open to all in a non-discriminatory way. It is not. Uh, it is not a public use in a very loose sense of the. Uh, I mean. Let's put it this way. It is used by the public in a non-discriminatory way. No problem here because it enables the public to take advantage of the relatively uh, relative uh, uh, efficiency of uh, running uh, the uh, program through a private entity, a private cable company, private telephone company, and so forth, rather than have to do it itself. Otherwise, all of this would have to be done through the public sector. The third category and the fourth category are the uh, the blight and the economic development uh, uses, respectively. And here you have the problems uh, that the book goes into in great detail with respect to blight. And in Kilo, you have the economic development use. And uh, I will not say anything more about these four full eminent domain uh, uses because I want to now turn to the regulatory takings issue. And I want to use as my example uh, Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal uh, Commission, uh, which uh, the Supreme Court decided in 1992. David Lucas was a developer in South Carolina who bought two parcels of land on the Outer Banks uh, for approximately a million dollars with the idea of building a home on one for himself and a home to sell on the other. There was nothing extraordinary in this. There were homes on either side of his lots and indeed between his two lots. But between the time he bought these and he commenced building, the South Carolina legislature passed the Beachfront Management Act for the pr promotion of tourism, the protection of certain flora and fauna, and the effect of the act was to reduce the value, if it's properly, from nearly a million dollars to almost worthless. He could picnic on it, he could pitch a tent on it, but it was pretty expensive tenting and picnicking property. So he did what every red-blooded American would do. He sued, and he won in the trial court, but in the South Carolina Supreme Court, he lost two to one, and so he went to the uh, US Supreme Court, and fortunately, cert was granted, and there he prevailed five to four. Think of that. There were four justices on the Supreme Court who would have been perfectly uh, okay with allowing the state of South Carolina to condemn his property and essentially wipe him out. Fortunately, there were five who decided otherwise, one of whom was Justice Scalia, who wrote the opinion. And in his opinion, unfortunately, he developed the, in effect, wipeout rule, that if the, uh, the regulation reduced the property uh, to almost nothing of value, then he was entitled to compensation. Well, the problem with that rule is that it turns property rights upside down. The idea is this. We use a metaphor of a bundle of sticks. When you own property, you own all the uses that legitimately go with that property. Therefore, Scalia is saying that only when that last stick is taken are you entitled to compensation. No, that gets it exactly backwards. It's when that first stick is taken that you are entitled to compensation beyond a de minimis level. In other words, if a mugger came along and said to you, uh, your money or your life, and you bargained him down to half your money, I think nobody would uh, say that he hadn't taken half your money. Yet if it's a, a government official with a badge that says, says, uh, I'm going to take 50% uh, of the value of your property, uh, we don't say that that's a taking because it's not a complete wipeout. That's how we have turned this completely upside down. Now, um, I, am, uh, I could, uh, let me just add to this a little bit uh, to what uh, Christina said, and this is this. 
What you have in these regulatory takings <clears throat> is the provision of public goods um, by condemning uh, and requiring the uh, payment of them on a single um, um, owner. It turns, the words, the welfare state on its head. The welfare state is one in which we think of uh, to provide those for those people who can't provide for themselves. Most of us pay taxes, and uh, these few people are the beneficiaries of it. Here, all the beneficiaries are the general public, and it's this sole individual over whose uh, land runs this lovely view or on whose property is this wildlife habitat who pays uh, the whole price for what the public enjoys. And so what you have here is the provision of public goods off budget. That means the, the legislature doesn't have to impose taxes to provide these public goods. So you can see how attractive this is. Moreover, when it's provided off budget, we have no idea as a public matter how much these goods cost. And therefore, as we know in Econ 101, when the price of something is zero, the demand is infinite. You want to know why you have so much regulation today to provide these goods? Because, of course, they're all done off budget, and the people think they're getting them free. And this is what is at the core of the regulatory takings problem. Um, there are many other regulatory takings issues. In the Nolan-Dolan case, you have the idea that uh, the, uh, there is a legitimate government purpose that must be served by the exaction. Unfortunately, in that decision, uh, the court had no idea what a legitimate government purpose was. It had no theory of the matter. It was, as I wrote in an article one time, a court without a compass with respect to that. Um, the book goes into civil asset forfeiture, which is another area of extraordinary abuse of uh, property rights. Uh, we at Cato have written a good deal on that uh, for many, many years. The Institute for Justice is doing tremendous work in this area. Let me conclude with uh, just this point. Um, tomorrow, we're going to have an extension of the property rights issue over to another area that we are not discussing here today, namely intellectual property. And we've got Richard Epstein from New York University Law School coming in to uh, be one of the participants in that program. So those of you who can't get enough of property rights today are welcome to join us tomorrow. For that program, it will be a stimulating program as those with Richard Epstein always are. Uh, and with that, I think I'll conclude and we can open up to any exchanges we may have and to your questions. Thank you. Did you want to take Tim or Christina a little bit to respond to anything? I, I think I should say a, a couple words about environmental law. I thought it was very telling that Professor Percival began by saying that the real property rights crisis in the world is in countries like China, and then he concluded his remarks by noting that China has such extremely bad pollution. I would submit that that's not a coincidence that private property rights is, in fact, more effective at preventing pollution problems than a system such as communism in which decisions about resource use are made by bureaucrats rather than owners, buyers, sellers, consumers, and so forth. The idea that environmental, environmental law <clears throat> is, quote, entirely consistent with property rights, end quote, is utterly laughable. Um, and a, a good example of that, of course, is the case of John Rapanos. Of course, Rapanos is no hero. Both Christina and I know Mr. Rapanos, and none of, neither of us would call him a hero. But, of course, non-heroes deserve to have their property rights protected also. A system in which only heroes have their property rights protected 
is more akin to the Chinese system in which the nomenclatura, the, the, those who have uh, inroads or, or, or connections with the ruling caste, have their property rights protected, but those of us who may not be heroes do not. Um, yes, the EPA is trying to regulate every drop of water. Um, the WOTUS rule, for example, is a good example of this. Um, I see my former colleague Todd Gaziano from Pacific Legal Foundation is here, and you can talk with him about that. Um, the, uh, and, and, of course, Rapanos' case, as well as the case of the Sackett family, were both uh, brought by Pacific Legal Foundation, and both of those cases are good in, uh, examples of how the EPA has run amok. If you remember the, um, the Sackett case, the Sackett couple tried to construct a home in Idaho. The, um, the federal government declared their perfectly dry property to be a wetland and thereupon ordered them to eliminate their, their beginnings of construction and repair, restore the site to its original condition. And if they didn't do so, they'd be fined something like $75,000 a day for failing to comply. And they were not even entitled to a hearing until PLF went to the Supreme Court. Theirs was not what you would call a large development anywhere other than the East Coast. Um, and the idea that most permits are granted, this is only true enough to be misleading. Um, also, one could also, and with equal plausibility, say that most people survive armed robberies. That is true, but you should not have to suffer the cost, delay, expense of having to go through the extraordinarily burdensome permitting process that's required by these environmental regulations. Well, uh, there is a role, of course, for the government to prevent pollution. That role is served through things like nuisance law, rules that prohibit a person from damaging another person's belongings, from polluting the, the air, you know, pouring oil into a river or something like that, of course. The problem is that the overly aggressive bureaucratic state that's grown up around these environmental regulations has moved us in the direction of societies where property use is determined by bureaucrats and those with political influence, and those of us who are not heroes have our rights disregarded. Tina, did you have something to add? Yeah, um, well, I, I just would respond uh, briefly to the accusation that uh, the book is you know, doing a little bit of grandstanding or perhaps to use a tangible property reference, making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, and, and that is, uh, well, first I'll say that you know, it is true that we should put things in perspective and we should be very grateful that we live in the United States of America where we at least still pay lip service to the sanctity of private property rights. But I think the, what we're trying to do with the book is caution people um, against just paying lip service to private property rights without actually doing something to protect the private property rights. And, um, you know, when we talk about Kelo, and it's true that the Kelo decision did not say that private property can be taken solely for a private user, at least that's not what the words of the decision say, but in effect, that's exactly what the court did, because the court said that we can take private property from one private owner and transfer it to another private owner so long as there's some sort of public benefit. We have no idea what a public benefit means, but if a public benefit can be an increase in uh, the government coffers because of an increase in, in tax uh, revenue, well, then I guess Donald Trump can go take grandma's house away from her if he wants to build a parking garage to put his limousines in Atlantic City. Um, so, so we ought to be careful about the illusion of protection for private property rights uh, and also uh, this, this area of um, regulatory takings where, again, you know, we see uh, the costs of regulations being borne by 
property owners entirely and being kept entirely off the books. I think um, that although we've made a lot of strides for protection of property rights, and again, this state legislation is a very important step. The courts have protected private property rights to some extent uh, in the past several decades, but we ought to be really careful about what's buried in between the lines and make sure that when we talk about protecting private property rights, we actually put our money where our mouths are. Uh, I'm going to open it up for questions. Oh, uh, yes. Just a couple of things. Uh, first, I may have given the misimpression. It's not that you're exempt if you have um, le uh, less than a half acre of property on your lot. It's you have to be filling more than a half acre of wetlands before you'll be subject to the permitting requirement. Secondly, the notion that just compensation is never really just compensation because we have such an emotional attachment to our property. Uh, that's true. I, like anyone else, would be ticked off if someone wanted to condemn my house on Capitol Hill because I have a history with an emotional attachment. But in every other area of law, tort law, compensation for harm depends on your lifetime earnings. When we decide whether or not uh, a regulation is too costly and therefore we're not going to regulate it as much. We look at the fair market value of what the harm will be done that's going to be prevented by the regulation. So that's just the way the legal system works. The Lucas case, Lucas was not a poor uh, landowner. He was the developer who developed the entire barrier island and deliberately left these two lots that he could have developed empty so he could bring this test case. The court uh, trial court there made the finding, factual finding, that it was a total wipeout. The reason there's never been another Lucas case is because regulation never works a total wipeout. It's just that for this case. So while Roger can decry the fact that four Supreme Court justices would have tolerated what will be done to Lucas, today the practical matter is all nine of them are because the rule is still that it has to be a total wipeout, and that's essentially a null set. Finally, China... You're right. Property rights are very new in China. They're not well developed. I don't know if that has a connection with the pollution. I think the pollution is largely a result of not having good environmental controls that are enforced. But look at the U.S. We have pro good property rights, and we breathe clean air. Uh, and that, to me, indicates the environmental laws are working pretty good instead of demonizing EPA and trying to advocate major repeals in them. We should be thankful for our system. Okay, while Roger responds, I'm going to point out uh, people can raise their hands and all will assume so. Yeah, with respect to Lucas, uh, not even Lucas was a total wipeout. Uh, as I said, he could picnic on it. Uh, it there was value in selling it to a neighbor for maybe $5,000, which is a pretty poor return on a million dollars. And so uh, I, I, I stand by the point that um, the issue is not whether it was a wipeout, but the issue is whether that first stick was taken because that is a taking too. You don't take it only if you take the whole thing. This is drawn simply from an analogy to the full use of eminent domain and property is not simply the fee, it is all the uses that go with it. Indeed, we can devise property in any number of ways. We can rent it, we can uh, do it in various segments, and all of those are property rights. Uh, one other thing just to mention, we've said nothing yet here about the horrendous procedural problems that 
property owners are up against the Williamson County test where you have to exhaust all your remedies uh, at the state level before you can even get into federal court. And the bureaucrats are past masters at stalling and putting you through norm hoop after hoop uh, until you either die, as happened, for example, in the Lake Tahoe case where fully a third of the 700-plus litigants died by the time the Supreme Court decided the case, or until you are exhausted financially. And then when you get into federal court, you find it's under the Full Faith and Credit Act res judicata, so you're back out. This is the procedural problem that you're looking at as a property owner, not to mention you're up against the government. Uh, sure. uh, Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. I wanted to ask about... Uh, Western versus Eastern conceptions of, of property in the United States. I don't mean something like the Far East or something, but um, you know, y'all are from Arizona, uh, and I imagine when you're speaking to audiences out there or any Western state, uh, the response might be, uh, this is part of my question, different than when you speak uh, in the East. Uh, we've seen with uh, federal land management recently in the news, uh, but not just that, water rights, uh, different things might resonate differently in different places. Perhaps something like Kilo doesn't, I don't know, but just in terms of spreading the gospel of property rights, whether romantically, Tim, or practically, Christina, um, how has uh, the reception for what you're uh, talking about, how does that differ depending on where you are in the country? Well, I think you're you're right that Westerners have uh, at least a, a different conception of property rights in the sense that um, their property rights have been threatened in ways that perhaps Easterners haven't experienced because um, the federal government owns such an incredible amount of land out in the western part of the United States, and the federal government oftentimes owns the water supply and can cut off your access to the water supply or cut off your access to na natural resources, so you, uh, you better play nice. Westerners learn you better play nice with the feds because otherwise um, there goes literally your um, means of livelihood. So um, I do think there's something about the West that still holds on to that notion of the importance of property rights and, and, um, and the importance of making decisions on your own property and what happens when the federal government comes in and does that. Uh, but I also think there's something to what Tim has said about the innateness of property rights and the fact that, that everybody sort of understands the conception of ownership and even children, we write in the book, even children at a young age understand the difference between mine and yours. And so I do think that there's still hope uh, for protecting property rights back east. Uh, but we probably won't be starting in those states when we try to pass the legislation. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, my name is Ron Bird. I'm a farmer. And uh, first of all, I want to point out that the half acre parcel that for the benefit of the city people. The half-acre parcel that's been discussed here is uh, would fit comfortably inside this room. You <laughs> speak into the microphone. Oh, a little closer. Yeah, yeah, and secondly, as a farmer, I would like to ask the panelists uh, all to comment specifically on the, the uh, EPA's Waters of the U.S. rule and its impact. <laughs> well, can I just start? I, I'll be the first to admit that the law in this area is totally confused because in the Rapanos case, the court split 4-1-4. Justice Scalia propounded this radical new theory that would greatly restrict reach of federal jurisdiction. They endorse it in their book. 
uh, the four dissenters said the existing rule was fine, and then Justice Kennedy out of nowhere came up with his substantial nexus test. So what EPA has been struggling to do is it's got all these scientists together to figure out what properties, if filled, will have a substantial nexus to navigable, in fact, waters. And on that basis promulgated this rule, which tries to make sense out of a Supreme Court decision. But what's crazy is all eight other justices rejected Kennedy's test, but it's the decisive vote, so that's what EPA is struggling with. And hopefully, when the litigation that's now being waged against it, will it'll go to the Supreme Court, and I hope the court will have the guts, because they've denied certain several other cases, to revisit that and actually have a full majority and not a 4-1-4 split. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with that. The the jurisprudence here is extremely confusing, and the fact that that Kennedy's, in this case, as in as in Kilo, tried to split the baby, um, just you know, was uh, created more confusion and full employment for lawyers. Um, I will say, however, that it's n- really not objectionable that a half an acre would fit into the ro- this room because I fit into this room and I'm a wetland. Um, <laughs> Right, because under the hydrological connection theory, which I know has been rejected, fortunately for us all, um, under the hydrological connection theory, which is advanced by some uh, federal officials and by certain courts, uh, if a molecule of water can travel from one point to a water of the United States through any distance and through any amount of time, that made this point also a water of the United States, which would make me a water of the United States since I just drank this bottle of water. Um, so, and I fit in this room, so it seems to me to make perfect sense. If I could add to that, it seems to me that this brings to the fore the folly of the move from the free use to the permitting regime. The permitting regime is one that thinks that you can do all of this through statutory or regulatory uh, regimes, uh, rather than uh, through the old system whereby you could use your property freely, and if somebody objected, the burden upon him was upon him to show why it is that that use took something that belonged free and clear to another or to the public. That seems to me to get the presumptions and burdens of proof right. Uh, yes, my name is Todd Kiefer. I am an infrequent, although I think, significant uh, blogger at freemarketmonkey.com. My question is about property taxation. Um, Property taxes are often defended as being more reliable, less subject to the ups and downs of economic activity. But they're often very subjective values of of property and used uh, essentially then it's the basis for a wealth tax with no regard to the current uh, ability to pay. So if anybody has any thoughts about that. You mean in terms of the fact that you might have extremely high property taxes and very low liquidity, so you can't even pay your property taxes? Uh, I, do you have any? In, in Kuntz, um, which was one of the takings cases where they were asked to contribute money to restore part of a damaged wetland elsewhere, the dissenter said that there's no limit to this proposition, and it might call into co- to question the constitutionality of property taxes. But Justice Alito, the author of the majority opinion, made it quite clear that this doesn't apply to property taxes. So that's all I know. Um, asked. <laughs> 
the owners were asked to pay for a permit for development. Uh, they were told that for a permit to develop a very small portion of their property, they would have to not only give up the vast majority of their property, but also pay the government for restoration of property that belonged to the government that had no connection whatsoever to the owner's property. Um, a simple exercise of extortion. And fortunately, the Supreme Court said that that was uh, not allowed. So asked. <laughs> you are right that, uh, you know, sometimes we look at property taxes being as being a simpler or fairer way to tax people. And, you know, I, I guess in some sense that's true. But what's happened at the state level is we've created unbelievable amounts of different categories for property taxes. I think Arizona has over 10 or 15 different categories for property taxes. And sometimes those aren't really based in any, um, you know, real uh, or any reality of how people are actually using their property. And then what, you know, the amount of property that we are assessing the taxes on is in oftentimes sometimes arbitrary and uh, assessments aren't made very often. So you could own property for a really long time, pay very little taxes, and then you could be a new purchaser of a home and pay very high taxes. So you're right. Um, you know, there are all sorts of complexities in the property tax system and it ought to be simplified. Yeah, actually, on that point, you know, the, the, the kind of the case study of the complexities on which, you know, reason, people of reasonable minds can disagree about this is Prop 13 in California, which has limited property taxes very, pretty stringently relative to the tax burden in the state. And as a result, the state has the idea at the time that it was adopted was starve the beast. You know, if you limit how much the government can tax, then that will, in theory, limit how much the government can do. But of course not. Uh, the government just charged it. And then it looked like it was free, you know. Uh, and what tax burden it, it imposed was shifted more in the direction of taxes paid by young folks who don't own homes, as opposed to the people who already established and own homes. And there's a very strong argument that that's just fundamentally unfair. On the other hand, if you were to eliminate that rule, all that would happen in California is just more taxes. I mean, it's not like it would, the, the state would care about shifting the tax burden to be more fair. It would just impose more taxes to run more government stuff. You know. Question up there? Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Julie Wang from uh, China Unlimited. Um, I have a question for Professor uh, Percival. Um, I uh, think you made a very uh, good point that uh, um, China's severe uh, environment problem uh, is partially due to the lack of e uh, effective environment control. Um, my question is, uh, what would you advise for uh, effective and efficient control on the environment uh, in terms of you know, uh, resolve the uh, pollution problems. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Um, the, uh, to me, the biggest problem with China's system of environmental control is how highly decentralized it is. Their Ministry of Environmental Protection has about 300 full-time employees. Our EPA has 15,000, and China has three times as many people as ours, as our country. Most of the basic decisions about pollution control are made by local environmental protection boards that are highly subject to corruption and political pressure from local industries. So what China needs to do, I think, is follow the US model, which means greatly beef up the Ministry of Environmental Protection, create regional offices. And I know those who demonize EPA and want to abolish it uh, won't like this, but in fact, China pretty strongly demonstrates that, at least in the U.S., that has been the key to success, and I think it would do a great deal to increase the enforceability of environmental law in China. Uh, could, I, uh, I, could I just comment very quickly? It isn't so much demonization of EPA 
it is the zealotry of EPA that concerns many of us because the protection, the kind of complaint that the uh, young woman uh, raised is really nothing more than a claim to protect, to better protect property rights. Your property and your person, and the, the property that all of us own in clean air and clean water. And so environmental protections properly understood are property rights protections, but it has to be done rationally, not with the zealotry that we see so often coming out of the EPA. Probably another okay. question about China. Um, uh, one thing I'd like to clarify here about China's uh, private property <clears throat> rights. Actually, there's no real property rights in China. Uh, you don't have the ownership for land, for your house. Even you purchase the house, you got uh, the title, but you don't have the ownership of the land. That means after 70 years, the land, you should purchase it again. And actually, some people, when you got the house, that means only 60 years left because they, it takes a long time for a developer to have their, uh, you know, the property built. And one thing in 1949, after 1949, CCP took over the power, and then the farmers got land for a short time. At that time, they abolished all kind of the title deeds in the old China, but they don't give the new title deeds. That means those farmers, they don't have the title deed for themselves. And not long after that, then they have the collective system. That's a communist, uh, it's called the People's Commune all those collectivism, then they have to uh, contribute their land again to a collective ownership. So, so far in China, we have a two system is called state ownership. The other one is called a collective ownership. The collective ownership means village level or town level. They have their, a kind of a decision, but they cannot sell land to anybody. They can only say, oh, this piece of land can be used as so, so what? maybe some kind of the purpose for commercial use, for uh, say uh, dwelling, some other things. So I just want to uh, clarify that, thank you. That's a, that's a very useful corrective, because I think, not a, I think um, a lot of people still labor under this misapprehension that China has in some sense become a free market society, <laughs> which you, you encounter this sometimes, it's, just, it's mind boggling. But a, a thought occurred to me just this morning, we were talking about, we saw the newspaper about the earthquake in Taiwan. And there, the news story this morning was that a, an apartment building had collapsed. They're cleaning away the rubble as we speak. And that this apartment building had been so shoddily constructed, the walls were literally made out of tin cans over which ch um, concrete had been poured. And the ch Taiwanese government has issued an arrest warrant for the developer who built, who is responsible for the construction of this apartment. This is all allegedly, this just happened hours ago. But the news story pointed out that this would really come as a shock to people on the mainland where they suffered terrible collapses of shoddily constructed buildings and earthquakes recently. And the government acted to make sure that the, the people responsible for building the buildings could not be arrested and charged with wrongdoing. That is the essence of the difference between a property rights regime and a non-property rights regime, is that in a property rights regime, the decisions are made by people who are, in, who are buyers and sellers, consumers who decide for themselves in a strict regime of tort law or, or contract law 
that applies to individuals. Whereas in a society with no property rights or few property rights, decisions are made by bureaucrats who are subject to political considerations and don't necessarily, or even often, concern themselves with what actually benefits consumers. And that's why, down the line, communist societies are heavily more polluted than societies that are relatively freer. There's a fantastic book called Ecocide in the USSR that documents uh, very thoroughly the environmental disaster area that is the former Soviet Union. And the reason for that is because decisions on where to put pollutants were made by bureaucrats, not by the people. We have time for one more uh, here, sir. They're working. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to offer one little anecdote. Um, I'm a homeowner down, uh, have a house on the Rappahannock River in Virginia. There, I am subject to the Bay Act. Um, I cannot put, and my property is less than half an acre. I will say, I cannot put a tool shed, maybe that might cost me a thousand dollars, on my property without incurring perhaps about five thousand dollars worth of regulatory costs of hiring engineer and getting permits and so forth. <clears throat> Yet at the same time, I have a creek, and, and for some reason, I guess it's the non-permeable roof on that tool shed. If rain falls on that rather than on ground, it somehow is going to affect the oyster population 50, 60 miles downriver. Um, I guess a lawyer would dream this one up. Sorry. <laughs> At the same time, Virginia Department of Transportation owns all the streets in my town. They send all the rainwater down into a creek that goes right by my property and empties into the river sometimes. The problem is that that creek often uh, has sand that prevents that water from going into the river. So in a good gully washer, that water decide, had decided in the past to go on to my property and wash away the corner of my lot. Okay, so I lose my lawn in that area. I didn't replace it right away. I finally decided I could afford to put some riprap and a seawall there to try and prevent this from happening. But in the permitting process, I was not allowed to recapture the lawn that I lost because the state had sent the water down onto my property because it is now a wetland because now some reeds were growing there. Even though these were invasive reeds, which I could go out and kill, legally, um, I was not allowed to recapture that part of my lot. This, it seems to me that there should be some greater connection between these rules that are placed on properties, these regulations, and the benefits that are gonna be uh, achieved in the end, and, and not allow also the state to, to do far greater damage if there is damage being done by this runoff uh, then let's say my putting a tool shed on my on my lot. Um, you're lucky you don't. You're lucky you don't live in New York. <laughs> Perhaps I am. Or California. Is a quick response from any because we got 
We're just over. Uh, so if anyone has a quick thing to say, we can finish with that. You're, you're asking a lawyer to say something quickly. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I could. You get on. it cut off the microphone. Uh, but well, I, that, that's an excellent example. And I would just know that that's one of the reasons why we need the types of property rights reforms like we propose in the book, because um, I, I, one, of the, one of the major points in that reform is that government has to show an actual nexus. You know, in property law, we talk a little bit about a nexus between what government's trying to do and the actual benefit. Uh, and so what comes out in these um, in these types of decisions is, okay, government has to prove by real evidence that it's actually doing something that is helping the public health, health and safety and that isn't doing something to the detriment of the property owner. Uh, and, and that changing those rules has unbelievable effects on the way that people live their daily lives. It's incredibly important. Okay. Uh, well, we're gonna, that's going to conclude our program. There will be lunch served upstairs in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, and bathrooms are on the way up there. Look for the yellow wall. wall. But before we adjourn, please join me in uh, thanking our panel. <laughs> <laughs>